we're going to see God's plan for marriage defined in four ways. And we're going to look at the first two this morning. And so this morning, we're going to see the first two ways in which God's plan for marriage is defined or revealed for us. And we're going to do that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. So here's what we're going to do. Pick up with me Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26. We're going to read verses 26 through 28. We're going to pray, and then we're going to start making our way through the text this morning. So Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said, or excuse me, and God blessed the man, verse 28. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to be here this morning to hear your word proclaimed. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege that it is to hear marriage described and defined according to your word. So Lord, I pray that this morning as we begin this this mini-series on marriage, Lord, that we would understand what your plan for our marriages is. Lord, I pray that you would help us to then, Lord, discern our own marriages as your Holy Spirit leads and convicts and encourages, Lord, that we might know the strengths and the weaknesses that we have. Lord, that those strengths would continue, that those weaknesses would be confessed and they would be strengthened. Lord, all that you would be glorified and honored in our marriages. And so we thank you for what you're going to do. I pray that you give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I pray that you help us to understand the text for your glory and for your honor. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, again, in the text, we're going to see the first two ways in which God's plan for marriage is defined. And so, first of all, we're going to look at the plan for marriage number one. So, first of all, we're going to see the plan. Now, let me just kind of give you the context of where we're at. Obviously, we're in Genesis chapter one, and we are here in the creation account, the very first chapter in the Bible. Now, this is the account, remember, of how God in three persons created the world and everything in it. Let me say this just to make sure we're all on the same page. This is not the Christian view of how God created the world. This is the truth of how God created the world. Amen. I just want to make sure we say that up front that we understand this is not an option that we can believe in how all things came into existence. No, no, no. This is the truth. This is the only creation account. This is what happened. This is how and why we exist. And ultimately we exist for the glory of God because we were created by our God. And so this is the creation account. And it is from the creation account, these three verses specifically, that we're going to see God's plan revealed for marriage. Now, what I want you to notice is that we're focusing in only on the creation of mankind created in the image of God as male and female. So in order for us 
to walk worthy of our calling within marriage, we have to, first of all, understand what God's plan for marriage is. So let's jump into the text. First of all, notice that God, in verse 26, is speaking in plurality. I want you to keep your Bibles open and in front of you, because I'm going to be referring to lots of stuff in the text. So notice, God said, let us make man in our image after our Likeness, And so notice that God here is speaking in plurality. God is not individual. God is three persons that all represent one God. Now we know God as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And when we understand that there is three persons that make up the one God, it helps us make sense of what we see in Genesis 1 what we see in John 1, and what we see here in this text. So you don't have to turn in your Bibles, but just look back in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So notice there in the first two verses, we see a difference between God, who created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God that was hovering over the depths. Then we come to John chapter 1 in the New Testament in verses 1 through 3. Here's what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so when you put all this together... You get a headache, number one, because it's hard to understand. But when you put all this together, here's what you come out with. God the Father, God the Son slash Word, and God the Spirit are all three individual persons. They are not the same. They are three individual persons who all make up as a trinity the one God. Now... You say, how can three go into one and one go into three? How can three equal one and one? That's okay. You don't have to understand it perfectly because here's what we've come to realize. Our frail human minds will never fully comprehend all that is God. We just aren't going to be able to do it. And so it's okay for us to not fully understand it. It's okay for us to logically have a problem with three into one. But what we must believe is what Scripture reveals to be true is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were all three actively involved in creation. All three individual persons are one God. And without one of the three, then God is incomplete. Right? And so God is one, but God is three persons. So, all of a sudden, that helps us make a little bit better sense when we get to verse 26. And God says, let us, speaking within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so what we begin to see is that we have been created in the image of God. And so when we start thinking about marriage... I want us to understand that, first of all, individually, as man and woman, each individual person in here this morning has been created in the image of God, ultimately, so that we, as his image bearers, could bring him glory in our lives. 
We, we don't bear the image of God in order to take away from His glory. Instead, we bear the image of God so that as His image bearers, we would represent Him well and we would display, reflect, or bring Him glory in our lives. And so all of us have been created in the image of God in order to bring Him glory. And then we begin to see some impacts that this has on, on how we display God's glory in our lives. So first of all, we see that a part of being like God is that we have authority like God has authority. So notice this in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion or authority over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So here's what God's doing. God creates man in his image. God has authority because he is God. Amen. God's authority is is unquestioned. God has authority because he's the creator of all things. He is God. Therefore, he possesses authority because he's God. God says, I want you to bear my image, to be like me. And therefore, God gives us authority that we exercise over all the earth. Now, we don't have authority because we deserve it or because of who we are. Our authority comes only from God. Amen? Therefore, it is limited, not limitless. And if we're going to exercise our authority in a way that brings God glory, then we're going to exercise our authority the way that God exercises His authority. Two two things I want you to think through. One, God exercises His authority without abuse. Right? God doesn't abuse his authority and God does not abuse those that he is over. Instead, God graciously and mercifully loves those and provides for those that he is over. So if we're going to exercise authority over the earth, then we're not going to abuse. We're not going to misuse. We're going to treat that which God has given us authority over well. And we're going to be good stewards of that authority. Amen? Secondly... God does not usurp or abandon his authority. In other words, God doesn't stop being authoritative. God doesn't give his authority to someone else. God displays his authority. God exercises his authority, in other words. And so as man, if we've been created to bear the image of God and to be like God, and part of that is possessing authority, then we're not going to abuse our authority, but we're also not going to abandon our authority. We're going to exercise the authority that God has given to us. Amen? And so part of us being created in the image of God is that we have authority like God has authority. A second way in which we see in this text that we've been created in the image of God is through unity by diversity. Notice what I mean in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now remember, God is one in how many persons? Three. You take any member of the Trinity away and you have a missing part or piece of God that would make God incomplete and that would not represent well the God of Scripture. 
And so God is one in three persons. And there's unity within the Godhead, but there is diversity within the persons in the Godhead. God creates us to bear his image in the same way. We collectively are mankind, right? But we are incomplete unless we are male and female. That's going to become crystal clear when we get to verse 28 and when we get into chapter 2. But just make sure we all understand part of God creating us in his image is that he created us so that we would be dependent upon one another as genders because it is in that dependency, it is in that diversity that we are truly unified as mankind. So much so that we're going to see in verse 28 that if it wasn't for that diversity, we would have ceased to exist quickly. Right? We're dependent upon one another. And so what God does is he creates us in his image. Not that God is male and female, don't get the wrong idea. But God within the Trinity is three in one, dependent upon one another in order to be made complete. We are male and female created dependent upon one another in order to be made complete. And then in verse 28, we see the third way in which God creates us according to his image as God gives us the ability to bring life into this world. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So here's the question. Who gives life? God. Life comes from God. Amen? We see it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 in a minute. We see the command here given. We have no doubt that God is the giver of life. But because we've been created to bear and display his image, God has given us the ability to be involved in the process. Now we know that according to Genesis 2, 7, God breathed into man the breath of life. We know in Psalms 139, God's word is clear. God is intricately woven us and knit us together in our mother's wombs. He is the one who gives life to all of us even to this day. Amen? But God has involved us in the process. Why? Because God wants us to display his glory. We have been created to bear the image of God. And in the same way that God is the giver of life, God has given us the ability to be involved in that process. So part of us bearing the image of God is that we bring life into this world by having children, being fruitful and multiplying. And we cannot do this alone, but we need the male-female relationships in order for this to occur. Amen? We won't get into the details of biology and anatomy, but we all are on the same page. We understand the reality of that statement, right? Can't do it alone. We need one another. And so when we come away from chapter 1, and it's going to get more fun as we go forward, I promise. But as we come away from chapter 1 of Genesis, we see that we've been created to bear the image of God by exercising authority over the earth. Living in male-female relationships and being fruitful and multiplying on the earth. Now, that's not all that it means to bear the image of God. But that's what we see in these three verses, 26, 27, and 28. And then what I want you to notice is in verse 31, God sees all that has been created and he decrees that it is very good. In other words, creation happened exactly as it should. And so God's plan for marriage 
is that we would be within the image of God, that we would exercise His authority living within those male-female relationships so that we could be fruitful and multiply. And what I want you to notice is that God's plan, number one, is going to lead secondly to God's paradise that we see in chapter 2. Now, here's where it gets more fun. So turn with me now to chapter 2. We had to lay a foundation, but now let's get into chapter 2. Now, as we move into chapter 2, I want to clear up confusion. Chapter 2, it's important to understand, is not a separate creation account. It is a more detailed and intimate account of how God created mankind, male and female. So just make sure we understand that because too many times we read Genesis 1 and 2 this way. We read that God created mankind, male and female, and threw them out by the millions all over the earth in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, God over here in this secret place called the Garden of Eden, God created mankind, just Adam and Eve, but separate from all this that was already created. That's not what happened. That's not at all what happened. If that was what happened, then the ramifications of sin from Adam and Eve wouldn't have affected all those other that had been created. It wouldn't have had a problem for them. So that's not at all what happened. What chapter 2 is, is this. Chapter 1 is God creates all things. But because mankind was created in the image of God and is obviously special, separate from all other that was created, God says in chapter 2, now let me give you the details of how I did this. Let, let, me, let, me, let me give you a better glimpse of what actually took place in verses 26, 27, and 28. And let me give you the details of how I created mankind, male and female, in my image. And so we're going to begin then in verse 7. Now in verse 7, notice what it says in chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living Creature And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. All right, so here's what we see. God takes dirt, and he puts man together, right? Which kind of gives us a clue that that's why we're filthy rags. That's why we are dirt, right? That's why I don't mind being dirty. You don't mind being dirty. We're dirt, right? Makes a lot of sense, amen? We're dirt, but then God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, notice the picture we get here of the intimacy between God and his creation, right? That that, that picture of breathed into, it's the picture that I get when I think of CPR, of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, of blowing breath into someone else's nostrils so that they can find life within my breath, right? Right? So God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man becomes a living being. Also notice that this life that was breathed out was breathed out of God. Therefore, that life was eternal life, not temporary life. What kind of life does God possess? Eternal. So he breathed out eternal life into this man and this man became a living being that was supposed to, according to God's creation, live forever as long as sin doesn't enter into the picture and cause death. And so notice the intimacy involved between God and the man. But then notice as well in verse 15, 
We're not going to read every verse because we've got to make our way through. It says, Lord God took the man. He put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So remember, the man, Adam, was created to bear the image of God. Part of that bearing the image of God was to exercise authority over the earth. And so God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He takes him, he puts him into the garden to work it, to tend it and to keep it, to exercise his authority over creation. And so there Adam is. He's been created. He's got eternal life flowing through his body. He's been put in the garden to do exactly what God had created him to do, exercise his authority and display God's glory. And he's hanging out. When in verse 16, God comes and gives Adam a command. Notice what it says in verse 16. It says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now, I just want you to pause there for a minute. We automatically jump to verse 17 and we always see the one thing that he could not do. But I want you to notice the abundance of provision that God gave to Adam in the garden. Don't read verse 17. Look at verse 16 only. God said to Adam, this is yours. Eat. Anything you see has been provided for you so that you can not just have eternal life, but you can have abundant life. I have provided everything you will ever need in life. Eat it up and enjoy it all. Notice the provision God gives. But then in verse 17, God goes on. And he says you can eat from all the trees that are in the garden except for one that's in the midst of the garden. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Notice what it says in verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, You shall surely die. Now, we are sinners reading this text. And so as a sinner reading this text, we automatically focus on the one thing we can't do. But I'm telling you, when Adam heard this command, he wasn't worried about the one thing he couldn't do. He was focused on all that he could do. Amen? Listen, we we are that child that you put in the middle of a room and say, don't touch that. I don't care what that is. That's all that they're going to want to touch because you told them not to touch it. Right. If you had to say, don't touch it, they wouldn't have even known that was there. But because you said something to them, the sin nature is revealed and that's all they want to do is touch it. But I'm telling you, if they weren't born sinners like all children are then what would have happened is you'd have set them in the middle of the room and said, you can touch anything in this room, but don't touch that. They wouldn't have ever worried about that. They'd only cared about all the, whoo, look at all the stuff I can do, right? And that's what Adam was doing. And I want you to notice that Adam was happy. Adam was content. Adam was there in the garden. He had the provisions of an abundant life. Adam was good. But Adam was not yet complete. Notice that in verse 18. Verse 18 The Lord said, God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So who noticed that it wasn't good for Adam to be alone? It was God. Adam had no clue. Adam Adam didn't know he was alone. Adam had no concept of being alone. And you know why Adam didn't know he was alone? 
Because Adam wasn't alone. Adam was with God. He had been created in the image of God. He had a relationship with God. God had intimately breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. God had placed him in the garden. God had given him a command. Adam was in a, in a relationship with God. But it was God, the creator, who said, it's not good that man should be alone. In other words, creation is not yet complete. And in what I think is one of the more ironic and even, if I dare say, sarcastic moves in the Bible, notice where God begins to look for a helper for Adam. Verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name, the man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field, but... For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, the first time you read that, you wonder, did God really think he was going to find a helper fit for Adam in the animal kingdom? No, of course not. God wasn't lacking in knowledge here. God was revealing something for Adam. Two things that take place in verses 19 and 20. One, Adam exercises the authority that God had given him over creation. How? He named creation. And whatever Adam named them, that was their name. Why did Adam do it? Not God, because God had given the authority to Adam. And when God gives us authority, he expects us to exercise that authority. Therefore, it is sinful to usurp the authority. In other words, it is sinful to abandon the authority that God has given to us. When God gives authority, it is up to us to exercise that authority in a way that honors God. So that's the first thing God was doing. Adam, I gave you authority. Use it. Name all the animals. And whatever you come up with, that's what they're going to be called. And so Adam named all the creatures that existed on the earth. And secondly, God was helping Adam see what Adam did not yet know. Adam, you are not yet complete. I love the imagery of this. Adam is there. He's naming the animals. And as he names the lions, tigers, and bears. There we go. Just make sure you're paying attention. As he's naming the animals, Adam notices that these animals are not exactly like him because they're not alone. He sees the lion, and he notices that one of the lions has a mane and is bigger physically and looks different. But yet the other lion doesn't have all the extra hair, doesn't have the mane. It's not the same, but yet it is most definitely a lion. And he's naming the animals, and as he's naming the animals, God is not the one that notices There's not a helper fit for Adam. Adam is the one who notices. I am missing something. I'm not yet complete. And so notice what takes place next in the text. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God creates woman from the man, and then God brings the woman to the man. And you ask, Will, what in the world does this have to do with marriage? Well, let me show you in the verses that follow. 
Because what we have in verses 23 and 24 is the first wedding ceremony in all of Scripture. And I want you to notice a couple of things that make this really, really unique. One, Adam and Eve are without doubt a couple that we know for certain God has placed this woman in the man's life. All right, listen, how many of you have ever had a friend or, or a, a son, grandson, granddaughter, whatever, come to you and say, Oh, I met the person God wants me to marry. They're just so awesome and special. I know God has brought them into my life. And then you meet them and you go, uh, you sure about this? I don't know about that. I was talking to Rachel's dad. That's exactly the impression she had on Cameron had on him the first time they met. Like, well, I don't know. But I'm kidding, kind of. Right? But no, it's like, we know without doubt Adam and Eve were brought together by God. Amen? No other explanation. Guaranteed, this was God's plan for them to get married. Right? Not only do we know that God brought them together, but also something really awesome is that they're the only married couple in the history of the world that got to enjoy marriage before sin. That's incredible. Amen? It's awesome. And so what we have in verses 23 and 24 is we have their marriage ceremony. Now, you're going to have to you're going to have to kind of use your imagination with me backing up into verse 20, 22 and you're going to have to envision a marriage ceremony, okay? So so just the last time you were at a wedding, uh just kind of just envision what takes place. So so all of a sudden music starts going off, right? And, and the doors open in the back and the dad begins to walk the bride down the aisle, right? That's normally the first thing that takes place. Look in verse 22. And with the rib the Lord God had made, he, or excuse me, the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God has now walked Eve down the aisle, presented her to the man, and then the man said, he gives the marriage vows. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I know what you're thinking. Adam was not romantic, right? Because that's really weird vows. To say, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Here's what Adam says, though, in a more hallmark version, right? He says to Eve, you complete me. You're the one I've been looking for, right? Adam just tried to name all, or Adam did successfully named all the animals. And at the end of it, there was not a helper found that was comparable to him. Adam now knows he's missing something. He goes and takes a nap. He wakes up sore on one side and there's this woman standing there that God's brought to him as a gift, right? And Adam says to her, you're just like me. You're the one that I was missing. You're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You're the one that completes me. And then Adam names her. Why? Because... God had given Adam authority over Eve. Now we see that clearly in the text when you begin to look for it. Because what we find is in verse 18, there was not a helper fit for him. And then in verse 20, uh, 20, again, we see that there was not a helper fit for him. And so when Adam is brought, or Eve is brought to Adam, Eve is the helper that God had created to complete the man. Now, Adam might have had the authority, 
But don't misunderstand, both Adam and Eve, male and female, were created equal in the image of God. Equal and dependent upon one another. Amen? Well, now all of a sudden it begins to make sense. When you understand that all of this was taking place in chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, it makes sense that God doesn't just want us to enjoy male-female relationships like the animal kingdom, however that happens. No, He wants that to be enjoyed within the bonds of marriage. He wants us to be fruitful and multiply within the bonds of marriage so that we will live and dwell within families. And that is how we best display the glory of God and bear His image is by doing creation the way that God designed it. Which is that for the vast majority of us, us, unless there is a God-given exception, we will seek to be married so that we can be fruitful and multiply, so that we can fulfill God's plan for us as creation. And we will do it for the glory of God. And then in verse 24, God... As the ordained pastor, the one with authority, he pronounces the marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I hope that sounds familiar because that's exactly what Paul quoted in Genesis chapter 5, verse 31. That's what we're going to get in a couple of weeks. Three parts to this. If you're we got some newlyweds in the room that haven't been married for all that long. You want to have a successful marriage? Do these three things. Okay? Leave your father and mother. That's right. Leave your father and mother. The word there literally, graphically means to cut the cord. Cut the umbilical cord. It means that you were dependent upon your parents for survival But now that you are married, you have cut the cord. You have physically and literally left so that you're no longer dependent upon them. You are standing on your own. You are letting God influence your marriage and God influence in your life. And you're only allowing your parents' influence as God dictates and as they give godly advice. Right? But mama and daddy no longer have authority over you when you are married. You must leave. Amen? Listen, I don't know, I don't, I can't even tell you how many times a young couple has come to me dealing with marital issues and at the root of it, it's because mama and daddy are still way too involved. Cut the cord, leave. Carrie and I jokingly, but yet kind of seriously, recommend a three-hour buffer. When we left, we literally left and moved three hours away and we've never looked back. They threatened to move up here at one point and we said, we will maintain a three-hour buffer. You move, we move right? We're sure God would lead us that way, right? But there is something to distance that literally helps that progression. When Carrie and I got married and she had a flat tire, even though her dad and my dad are both mechanics, she could not call them. She had to call me, right? When we were having difficulty, when we were struggling, there was no one to turn to but each other. And so that leaving, literally leaving was helpful, right? If you want God to bless your marriage, you got to leave, right? Then you got to join. You're going to make it rhyme. You can leave and you can cleave. Problem is I can't make the last one rhyme. So we just leave and join, all right? It's, it's literally being permanently bonded or glued together, all right? That's what that word means. It, it means to be permanently affixed together so that you cannot be removed, 
right? You, you know if you've ever been through a divorce or parents or anybody in your family has been through a divorce, you know that when you take two that are permanently glued together and you pull them apart, both parties are damaged in the process, right? It, it, it tears stuff up in the process. Why? Because what God has joined together, Jesus says, let not man separate. Once you've been glued together, you got to leave it glued together. That's why we say, till death do you part. Right? Don't get divorced, just die. Right? I'm kidding, I'm kidding.